0: You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy to follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 116. Our guest today is Zephyr Sincerny. Zephyr is an outdoorsman, outdoors guide, outdoors educator. And originally this episode was meant to be about bow hunting. You probably know uh, from the previous episodes that I'm trying to bring a lot of information about bow hunting, especially to my Irish and UK listeners, and uh, clear out some of uh, um, misunderstanding uh, or miscommunication maybe uh, as it pertains to bow hunting, uh, that bow hunting is uh, inhumane or less humane than rifle hunting. So that was the idea of this episode. And uh, we got together with Zephyr. And by the way, big shout-outs to great friend of the podcast, Moose Mutlo, who was our guest in episode 109. He gets us together. Uh, So we sat down with Zephyr, and it quickly turned out that Zephyr lives such an interesting and fantastic lifestyle that it would be really unfair to only dedicate this episode to bow hunting. And uh, so we start talking, uh, you know, how he lives in Alaska. And it turns out a fantastic episode, very multi-dim- multi-dimensional episode where we talk about climate change and subsistence living and hunting and fishing, and also about bow hunting. Um, uh, towards the uh, second part of the of the episode, uh, extremely interesting episode, and I had a great pleasure talking with Zephyr. He's such a wonderful soul. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty sure you will enjoy this episode, uh, whether you're a hunter, or maybe you're just interested in subsistence living, or maybe you're just interested in you know how people live in other parts of the world, Alaska in this case. So I'm sure you will enjoy this episode of the podcast, and if you do, leave the rating. You can rate the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, leave the 5-star rating, that's a great help for me and for the podcast. Um, And if you want to support me personally, as usual, buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors. Editing those episodes extremely early in the morning. I mean, like 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, just to bring them to you and then keep up with all the other stuff that goes in my life. Uh, So coffee is very much required. And you can help me by buying me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors. Link in the description of the show. And now, without any further delay... Zephyr Sincerity and Subsistence Living in Alaska. here welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Tommy. It is a pleasure to be
1: here with you today and I'm excited to talk with you.
0: Oh man, uh, how's things in Alaska right now?
1: Well, I'm in South, in Haines Alaska, which is Southeast Alaska. Um, so the Northern end of the Inside Passage. So inland waterways, and we have mountains coming straight up out of the ocean. We're having a pretty cold and snowy winter this year for us. Today, it's about 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And fortunately, we have sun. Uh, not oh. so can we get a lot of here, but it's sunny and cold. We have about three feet of snow on the ground. And so I've been spending the last... Uh, well, a lot of my time and energy late, lately goes into snow plowing and sanding the roads and um, keeping the house warm.
0: I gotta, I gotta ask that. I gotta ask that question. Do you see over? Because obviously you you live there for for many years. Do you see the effects of uh, of climate warming or changing in any way compared to you know what was like a number of years ago?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Interesting thing is you can talk to some of the old timers from around here and they'll tell you, you know, 20 30 20 years ago even that we used to have snowfalls which were much more significant than they are uh now so all winter and one of the biggest things that we're noticing which is is really I find very interesting um I do a lot of backcountry snowboarding um Mm. we're very rural here. There are no ski lifts anywhere around. So if you want to ski or snowboard, you're, you're doing it yourself. And one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to is avalanche conditions. Right. Right. And we've been collecting, we have a Haynes avalanche center and they've been collecting data and watching it. And in the last essentially 15 years, but even in the last seven years, to five years and and closer what we're finding is that we'll get a storm and it'll be cold and we'll get cold snow you know really good cold snow all the way down to sea level and historically in Haines you had a snowpack that you could safely ski from the top of the mountain say uh you know four three four even five thousand feet up down to sea level and you could ski the whole way down and and your avalanche conditions would be fairly consistent until the very bottom what we're finding now is that the storms come in we'll get a cold storm like that and you'll be able to ski all the way down no problem and then it will the next wave will come through we'll get a low pressure and the rain level the snow level will go way up so now you're getting rain crusts and freeze crusts much higher on the mountain, which is where you typically want to be skiing and snowboarding. And so that's essentially increasing the avalanche danger significantly in the areas where people are recreating. So it's, I mean, that's one example is that those snow levels on those storms are coming up much higher than historically. You can also see around this area, um, I get out on the boat a good bit and do some sailing. And when we go by glaciers, we, I can see glaciers actually out my front window right across the, the river. And you can see just, I mean, significant, huge areas where the gr- glaciers have receded in the last 100, 50, 20, 10 years. And especially in the last short time, they've been receding—you know—much more quickly. And you can see; I mean, it's very obvious evidence of that. Um, yeah, so definitely, definitely noticing that in the climate shifting and storms being different, and also how um, storms are different. Well, like I was saying, we'll get those—the cold storm will come in and snow all the way down. And then it'll be followed by a warm, a really warm storm, whereas maybe historically that would have stayed, you know, the air would have stayed colder. You would have had a colder snowpack and essentially more snow all winter, less rain. And that seems to be fairly consistent with a lot of uh, climate change in, in the U.S. is that those snow levels are rising and wintertime snowpack in high in the mountains that used to stay all summer, for example, take the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. Um, you know, that used to be kind of the, they would have a snowpack all winter long, which would provide water throughout the summer for the central Valley, which is one of the biggest food producing regions in the world. And that snowpack is less consistent now because of those uh, higher snow
0: lines in the winter i'm glad i asked you because you gave us such a (laughs) interesting and comprehensive answer but but i mean like this is this is real you know uh i don't know if you know but surely listener of my podcast know i i come from poland so even you know in poland the winters i remember as a kid uh you know we had like a minus 10 minus 15 celsius and you know uh snow everywhere and we were playing in the snow and all that and uh, that is not happening anymore. Simply, no, there's like a little bit of a snow here and there. Um, yeah, uh, especially in the, in the central region where I where I was born. Um, that's not happening anymore. So that that definitely uh, is right. going on. Listen, man. Um, the, the question I I uh, usually ask um, people in podcasts, but especially with someone as so interesting as yourself. Uh, how do you? Is it like a two-part question? The first part is like, how would you describe yourself? I you describe myself as an educator, as a guide, as uh, you know, like what, what, how do you? And, and I know, like, you know, people might not like to label themselves, but surely, right. you know, you 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 recognize yourself as as, um, you know, maybe educator, maybe outdoors guide, and. Second part of this question is like, you're you living such a fascinating outdoor lifestyle. And how how did that happen? You know, that you have this, this, this awesome uh, lifestyle uh, and not, you know, in the cubicle or in the office. You know, whether it was like from the very beginning, it, you were just straight on this path or whether something happened in your life and then you, you ended up in Alaska doing what you're doing
1: yeah i I think some of both um (laughs) uh yeah so i i would i would consider myself an educator for sure um i've spent i spent um i've spent about 20 years or so in the outdoor education field some of that has been doing teaching field science education or you know um And then also that has been working with, um, well, I worked with Outward Bound for nearly 10 years, leading sea kayaking and mountaineering trips in Washington State in the North Cascade Mountains. And um, I also worked in Yosemite National Park with Nature Bridge and school age students. Um, I've done some substitute teaching and a lot of things. So when i'm in the outdoors i love to share it with people and that's that's been my biggest passion throughout life is a being out there myself and connecting and finding new ways to connect with the natural world and then sharing it with people that lights me up like i love it um and that that ties through though i'm not working in those fields currently i still that's still passion for me um And I do, I have worked as a guide and done that. And it's a very fine line, I would say, between like outdoor education and trip leading and guiding. Um, Whether I'm being acting as a guide or an educator or as a trip leader or an instructor, I feel like I have, I always tend towards the instruction mode. I would, I would rather be out with somebody and be sharing things with them giving trying to give them tools so that they can be empowered to learn to be outside comfortably to live outside to handle adverse conditions to enjoy you know the the place that you're at or whatever's going on so that's my passion and um right now i'm fortunate enough to start being able to do that with my two and a half year old daughter. Um oh, wow. and my and That's my weird. partner. So yeah, currently I'm a stay-at-home dad. And so I I spend a lot of time with my, my little girl and like I said, keeping the house warm, cooking the meals, trying to keep it clean and keeping our water system running and our, you know, all the different things um so that's what i do you're you're
0: um, also interested in, a, in like a subsistence to living right you 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 you're growing your food your your uh, vegetables and stuff
1: yeah and that's really interesting and i feel like that that uh is connected with the second part of your question of like how did how did you get in how did i get into this um i grew up on a on a commune in southern oregon and so that was a very alternative lifestyle. We lived um, a mile from the nearest paved road, and there was a group of families that each each family had their own household, and we had a great big community garden that you know everybody would work in and chip in, and that's where a, a big part of our food came from. Um, so there was a lot of shared responsibility by the adults in that you know it might be that one person was doing child care taking care of the kids that day so that everybody else could go work on X that needed to be done in the in the garden or building a new shed or whatever that might be. So I grew up in rural southern Oregon um, very alternative lifestyle. and then when I was about ten years old, we moved to the town of Ashland so. A reasonably sized town, and um, the reason I share those pieces is because I think that for me, being outside and feeling very a part of and connected with the natural world has been always been there. Um, I spent all you know so much of my time outside, and I that's definitely shaped my my path in life
0: for sure for sure yeah and what a better place than alaska now to to yeah. enjoy this type of lifestyle
1: yeah and I, I i've always been attracted to alaska um when i was in high school i was thinking like okay am i gonna go to college or do something else and i was like no way i'm not i don't need i don't want to spend any more time in school I'm going to Alaska. I'm going to go to Alaska and I'm going to build a cabin and go fishing. Like that's it.
0: Wow. Um, so that was like from the very, that, that you you were just, that was like a, from an early day, that was your plan. And there you go.
1: That's like, that's like six, 14, 15, 16 year old Zephyr. However, that's not what I did. Um, so that was my, my dream. And then I think it was, you know, just before I graduated graduated from high school, I was like, oh, you know what? I think it makes a lot of sense to go to college. I have the opportunity to do that right now. And it seems like that would be a, a really wise thing to do. Um, so I went to university and uh, had a great time. And so life has taken me many paths since then. A little while after that, I got, I started getting into outdoor education and that's, that was, you know, my, my, my passion and what I did for a long time. Finally, when I moved up to Alaska, I was working in Yosemite national park for, for nature bridge. And I had, I had started as an instructor in the field and a campus manager. And did, I did that for a long time and a lot of trip leading and, um, I was moving kind of up in the ranks, so to speak. So I was doing more and more management and I was then in the office and kind of like you said, in a, not a cubicle, but in an office in front of a computer, on the phone all the time. And (laughs) it, it wasn't filling me up. You know, I was like, this, this isn't where it's at for me. I got to do something else. And I just happened to have the opportunity. So I took off and went to Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) storage i loaded up my truck and i cruised up to alaska i'd been up here well i first started coming to alaska when i was just out of college i came up and did some commercial salmon fishing and i'd come back numerous times with friends to just visit and hike um i did my first sea kayaking trip uh me and a friend paddled Did about a 200-mile, six-week sea kayaking trip in southeast Alaska. So I just kind of – I kept coming up here and enjoying and just being pulled in more and more. And so finally I was like, I I just – I got to go. So that was about six years ago when I came up here and I was just bouncing around, checking stuff out, looking for places where I thought I'd like to settle – Picking up some guiding jobs here and there just to stay afloat, and it was it was great fun. Uh, and then I kind of settled up here in Alaska, worked for a heli ski organization for a little while, and then found my way here to Haynes. Um,
0: yeah, That's great. I mean, uh, man, you're living the dream, in other words, you're living the dream.
1: Yeah, and so what that has led for me is like we were talking about, I've always been really connected with the outdoors. And I, it's interesting. I hear people talk about, I hear the expression when people sometimes say, I'm going into nature. And that to me sounds so odd because in my, in my gut, in my stomach, I, I am, we, I believe that we all are nature. So how can I go into something that I am? It's not this thing that is outside of us. We, we're we a part of it. And, and I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition that, that, that we find. And so for me, that connection is, I'm another, I'm a human animal, right? I'm a human animal and... <laughs> I'm part of nature. We're part of nature. So when I go walk out my front door, I'm not going to a foreign place.
0: This is this is uh, you know g- quite often we we talk about is like people these days they are kind of totally disconnected from nature, and yeah. this is this is one of the things that you, that you're just talking about that yeah. Oh, then I go to nature, um, like th- like this is something separate yeah right there's like here's the doors and here's nature and now we're coming back from nature oh, and right. like something else right that's a that's a you know quite quite common let's say complaint or quite common observation yeah uh, that people who are you know into outdoors into hunting and fishing and 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 so on um have these these observation and from that there's a you know, lack of understanding, really, uh, of uh, of nature. You're you're obviously also not all, only growing your food. You're also hunting, hunting, fishing, right?
1: Yeah. So that has right. So being in Alaska for me, like, <laughs> I've always, I've always been and wanted to be uh, in touch with my food. Right. I use my body throughout my life. I've used my body for my work. You know what I'm. Doing outdoor education. I'm outdoor every day, trip leading. I'm out all the time. What all my favorite jobs, I've always been outside. My body is what I use for work, a big part of it. And I've found that what I put in makes a big difference of how I feel um, physically, you know, what I'm doing, what's going on. And I think, especially since I started hunting. I actually have started to feel that even more and more and become more mindful of it. And so that draws me to when I know where my food is coming from, A, I know that it's healthy, and it increases the intimacy with that situation, that animal, that place, and it makes me healthier. Like I, I there is no doubt in my mind that if I eat, more or highly processed foods those are not things that the human body is actually designed to consume and process our bodies are pretty incredible at processing all different kinds of things but when i'm closer to that i i can like i feel it i feel my
0: health i even read read the book where uh the author was describing how uh even if you're Um, eating beef and even if there's a you know slow grown pasture fed beef you know all the all the best things still those animal act and behave differently than wild animal Mm -hmm. even in the sense of they're not self-medicating eating different herbs and and stuff like that and then it was like a fascinating description of you know how that impacts the hormonal system of these animals how it impacts you know fat production of these animals well, like how that fat is different and then in turn when we eat that how our body processes differently those different fats from those animals yeah. and and it, it was you know it was one on one hand it was fascinating and on the other hand it was kind of depressing yeah um yeah. Be, 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 you know because like how difficult it is to get a good food, and you know, people fortunate enough who live in the, in a you know areas like like you, where you you still have access to to wilderness or, or wild animals who, who live there, Um that's great. And you know, like I live in Ireland, or people who live in the, in the UK, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of them like you know are proud of I use that word or or happy that they. Uh, have opportunity to hunt and and mm-hmm. you know harvest deer and so mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. but the truth be told those deer they're living in the farmland they're living in the, you know in the you know in between the commercial forestry so they also yeah. are already impacted into by you know what we uh, so so it, it 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 was kind of uh kind of sad but at the same time it's you know i think that the more me here we go here we say educate people and I just by the way I'm just like you're a perfect guest for my podcast (laughs) because this is all about educating people about outdoors and and what's up Yeah, Um, you know the more people know about it the more more, um, they will number one have a better food choices make a better food choices number two uh, you know uh, really put pressure on food production um, Mm -hmm. you know demanding better food demanding um, even even if it's a simple things right I'm not going to buy those you know hamburgers that are you know made of god knows what um I, i'm gonna opt for for a beef from a farmer right and I, you know so you, so we could see the cows and so on yeah um so so listen listen so so uh, tell me are you are you uh like live, living off completely of the wild game or or do you, so how does it work? You have like a big massive freezer and then, yes. then you try to fill out the freezer in the season and then you kind of basically leaving off that? Yeah. Um several freezers. Um oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um yeah,
1: so I feel i f- I feel really fortunate to have found and settled in Haynes, Alaska. It's a place that still has intact, fully intact ecosystems right outside the door. Like we have ecosystems with megafauna like moose and black bears and brown bears all the way up to wolves. What that tells me is if we have apex predators like wolves in our ecosystem, that means the rest of that ecosystem, that food chain. So the water, the environment, the food sources, those are all intact feel really lucky to be in a place where that is still happening we still have five species barely five species of pacific salmon uh the king salmon on the river right out front the chilcat river are uh pretty low numbers and definitely on the edge but um so we have that we have moose we have deer a ways down the canal down the fjord and With with that, I am able to live a lifestyle right now, which is, I'd say it's a quasi-subsistence. So I do as much subsistence as I can. Um, I'm here, it's one of, I think, maybe one of the few places in the world, but at least one of the few places for sure in the U.S. where as a resident... I can go and do subsistence fishing for salmon. And that allows me up to 50 sockeye per season. Um, I think it's 50 coho and even more chum and pink salmon than that. So I can use, I use a 300 foot gill net out of, and I have a 16 foot aluminum skiff, little motorboat that I use to fish on the ocean with. And um, you can also use a net in the river. So I'll have a smaller net. And so in the summertime, usually in, the, in July and beginning of August, um, me and my family, we end up fishing and putting up um, 50 to 80 f- salmon. And we, I fillet a lot of them and then freeze them and then we also, I do a lot of what we call fresh pack canning. So mason canning jar and just put, cut the fish into pieces and put it in there and then can it. And then I also do a lot of, uh, I smoke some of the fish and then can them or, or uh, vacuum seal them. So we do that with salmon and that's a, that's a really big food source for us. Um, we will eat salmon for all, all year long and it's it's one of our biggest food sources we we probably i eat salmon probably uh between 1 and 3 times a week depending on you know the week
0: that's uh that's a big thing like man i'm so jealous because this is like you said this is a source of health like physical and mental
1: it's incredible um yeah it's incredible what we've talking about been talking about uh you know healthy healthy, healthy food. Uh, you know, they're wild, wild salmon. I'm catching them and processing them within a day or two. Um, and yeah, so I mean the, the quality of meat is great and the nutrients that I'm putting into my, my body and my daughter and my lady, like it's, it's incredible. And I just, and it also brings me so much connection. I feel so grateful and so thankful like every time I take a salmon out of the freezer, every time we sit down to dinner and I take a bite of it, I I know where that fish came from and it was it was my hand that took it out of the water and killed it and bled it and every time I any animal that I I harvest. Um, I say a prayer for it, and I give thanks at that time.
0: And people who listen to that, and people who listen to that, I just want to say, don't go and don't buy farmed salmon. That's that. That's not a sin. The farm salmon is it's the it's the opposite to what Zephyr is saying. We we do this, uh, you know. And I I think this is a big part of what what you know. Now people have started to wake up. How just terrible for both environment and for your health the salmon farming is mm-hmm. so I just want to say that for people who listen to that and they just are not getting expired just don't go to the shop and buy a whole bunch of you know packed salmon it's not the same
1: and and yeah and and it, and it's really it's uh, like it's a it's a real challenge because it comes back to I think something that you alluded to a few minutes ago and that was not everybody has the opportunity or lives in a place or has the time or this, you know, the, the skill and experience to go harvest their own salmon. We live in a world where that's not actually wouldn't, it's not sustainable for everybody on the planet to do that. And so how do we find ways, how do we find ways for many people to eat salmon but also not have to rely on a farmed fish that isn't being good for the environment or isn't being, uh, as high quality, you know? And so, you know, one of the ways right here that we're talking about is, yeah, if you're hungry right now and you're like, oh, salmon sounds good, go to, go to the market and look at where, look at the label on that and take a few minutes to figure out where that fish is coming from. If it's a wild caught Alaska salmon, that's a good fish to eat. If it's a wild caught from somewhere else in the world, that's also probably a, you know, that's a good fish to eat. Um, Yeah. In Alaska, we have the expression, you'll see bumper stickers around, you know, friends don't let friends eat farmed salmon.
0: (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) That's (laughs) a good one. (laughs) So I'm I'm on board with that. Uh good, 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 good. We need we need don't, those. We don't need buy those a farm
1: salmon. If you really need it that bad, let me know. I'll see if I get I got an extra piece of salmon for you.
0: <laughs> oh man. Uh you know, but your your touch on the on the important problem here because you know, uh and, and uh, I don't even want to go there because that's a that's a material for an entire another yeah. episode yeah. of the podcast or maybe ten. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, with those wild, wild salmon um You know, obviously, uh, I I I said many times that you know what's going on in United States is probably gold standard on on fisheries management and uh, and and sustainability. Although I'm sure you 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 know that you know but the bud and the uh, ugly as well because I'm 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 guessing it's not all perfect. But then there are other uh, other fisheries of wild salmon that are you know just straight up unsustainable. Mm-hmm. and with a growing population. So it's it's just tough. It's just tough. Let's leave it at that. We will. Um so that's a that's a big part of our subsistence and
1: that's a big that's a significant chunk of our our food. Um another really special fish that uh I rely on not as heavily but significantly is um here we call them the hooligan um, so not a, not a football hooligan, but a fish. Um, and
0: I heard the name. I heard the name. I cannot connect like a visually, but I heard the name hooligan. It's it's like one of the names of the fish, right? Yes. Give me another name of that fish. Eulachon,
1: and eulachon is the more of a formal name. I think that's the the actual name of the fish. Eulachon hooligan, um, often called candlefish. And they're they're a type of smelt, um, so typically a, a six to six to nine inch long fish. Um, you might consider a bait fish, a silver fish. The thing that kind of sets them apart is they have an incredibly high fat content, essentially. And the native folks that have lived in this area for the last. Three thousand plus years um relied very heavily on the eulatron to or the the hooligan to get them through the winter they would um and people still do this but they would take and harvest a bunch of the fish and essentially let them ferment for a while and let the oil separate out and then store the oil and throughout the the winter that's one of the things, one of the big ways people survived in this area through the harsh, the, you know, these harsh winters is because they had an incredible fat source that they could store. Um, so the, the, the Chokat Indians, Native Americans in this area were very rich in that way. And so anyway it's, it's it's again I feel so blessed and fortunate to be living now and we still have a strong hooligan run on both the Chilcat and the Chilcoot rivers which are one is right outside my door and the other's are a couple of miles away
0: is that also seasonal is it is it like a season that you can can catch or the season that they show up and then you can catch or exactly. is it like year long
1: Exactly they come to spawn in the rivers um April, end of April, beginning of May, typically. And we go down to the river and you just can take a little dip net and dip them up. And they're great to bring home. Usually, what I do with mine is I bring them home, I brine them and then I smoke them. And they're, they're delicious. (laughs) Um, And they're a great snack. So, like, afternoon, if I'm getting hungry, two o'clock. I eat one or two hooligans, and that'll keep me going until dinner time.
0: Um, Man, snacking on hooligans—that's <laughs> life.
1: Yeah, so that's a really unique and special fish um, here as well. And those are the two big subsistence fish that I go for. There's also halibut, and a lot of people do, uh, you know, subsistence fishing for them. And we get a little bit of halibut some, from from some friends. Do some trading and get some halibut. I just haven't gotten it together to go set up my own rig and do that yet.
0: I would like to. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I, come on, man! You got to do it. You got to do it. They're like, yeah, Alaska halibut. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, also, I have, you have to be pretty mindful of the of the mercury content with a halibut. The bigger, oh really? Yeah, the bigger fish are gonna have a, a higher mercury content, and they're not the ones you want to eat. It, I would want to eat anyway if I if I were to catch a big halibut. I want it to go back in the ocean because they're the ones that are
0: producing
1: way. You know, yeah. the,
0: there are females, right? Those biggest, yeah. those those big halibuts, they're all females.
1: I think usually the biggest ones are.
0: Yeah, but. yeah. So that's why why they're they're pretty old, and that's why over the lifetime they they accumulate mercury in their bodies. That's that's. Exactly. So you get the, you know, get a 10, 20 pounder. They're great.
1: Um, so, yeah. And, you know, we also do, I also do some uh, crabbing and a little bit of shrimping. Same thing. I haven't gotten way into that just because there's summertime's crazy here. There's so much going on. You want to do a million things. and uh, but, <laughs> but that's also a good food source that we've tapped into a few times.
0: What part of uh your diet is uh wild game uh um like a big game hoofed animals i don't know bear you probably you're hunting bear as well right you
1: know i haven't been hunting bear um there are a lot of black bear here and i definitely um consider that and that's something that i am interested to do up to this point i've been hunting other animals and been able to get plenty of food so I haven't needed to do that
0: um, you know I think if there was I guess that's a that's the difference between a hunter who goes from a place and they want to tick off the list a bear a moose and this and that's that well for you it's like different because you're like okay, I'm doing that for food like I have a plenty of food I don't need to do <laughs> yeah so I guess your your mindset is, quite different how you approach hunting.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's something that I've really, I've noticed as I moved to Alaska and have gotten even more into it. I was, I was into providing as much of my own food as I could previously, but it's more of my way of life now. And, um, yeah, for me, it's, it is about being outside. It is about the Enjoyment. I, I love being outside and doing it and hunting and fishing. And also it is about, uh, it's about the food for me in a big, in a big way. So yeah, you're right. Like if I can, if I'm hunting other animals and I have enough meat for the year, I don't need to go hunt a bear or whatever, but at the same time, sometimes it gets gets lean and you're like, okay, what, what animal can I get right now?
0: (laughs) Um, Yes. That's the other, that's the other side of it.
1: And, and I, and I'm in a place where, you know, if I don't, if I'm not able, I'm not living an entirely subsistence based life. So if I'm not able to get that food, I do buy things, you know, from the market, from the supermarket and, you know,
0: so you're not religious about it. You're just, you're just uh, keeping healthy balance. And when you can, you do. And when you don't, you're not going on a hunger. It's like, no, I'm not eating anything. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> just well, just- <laughs> and you know what? I've, I've noticed in myself that actually in the last several, actually since I started hunting, if I don't have game meat, I just won't eat meat in my diet. Right now, I, as I said, we do go to the market and I, w- I buy some bacon sometimes and, you know, buy a sausage because I, I can, it's easy enough, you know, it's easy. And buy a chicken and, um, you know, when I'm doing those things, I try to look at the label and I, I look at it and I figure out like, oh, is this a free range? Is this, and what does that mean? Um And one of the big things I try to look at is how far from me is it? And I try and buy things that are as close as I can get. I'd rather buy something that comes from Washington state than from, uh, you know, Vermont just because it has, I think a smaller impact on the the whole, the whole picture. So, but, but oftentimes I will just, I just won't eat meat then,
0: you know, And that's a, you know, that's another thing, you know, you have, you have plenty of fish and, and then, you know, I I think that in general in life, it's important to not, not get, you know, too entrenched in some, uh, you know, idea that you have to do this or you have to Mm. do that and be kind of be flexible. And, uh, I guess our, our, uh, this is healthy for our bodies as well, because our bodies are also built to, um, you know, go through these changes, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. thing that is very, uh, let's say, in fashion these days in a in a in a, a fitness industry and, and so on is the intermittent fasting and all that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that only comes from the fact that our body is was just built for the periods where we don't have much food and we're fasting, and the certain processes are happening in our body. It's natural, right? Uh, and and if you think about it, being fed well all the time is not natural because it's it, right, did, right. it, it, it yep. didn't happen for like thousands and thousands <laughs> of years that you always had a food in the freezer right right so gotta, surely your body built stuff uh, to, for three, those occasions three
1: good three good sized meals a day with snacks in between
0: as not always exactly <laughs> Exactly, um, exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm starving, right? It's like no, people can go 30 days without food. You're not yeah. starving because you didn't have your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Right. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's it's important not to be dogmatic about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's the word I was looking for. Dogmatic. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Zephyr, listen, uh, and so what, what, what percentage of your, like, I, because I'm, you know, when I'm, when I'm heading with that, I heard that you that you'll be on uh, some exciting moose hunts as well. Yeah. So I guess like a, yeah. like a moose is, uh, gives you meat for like entire year. Like how, how, oh, yeah. how much is it? <laughs> I, I was talking with a, with a, with a hunter from, uh, Sweden. I think it was episode 77 and they doing this moose hunt mm-hmm. but number one I think that the Swedish moose is like you know smaller than the one that you get on Alaska and then yeah. they're uh there's like a, a group hunt so they have a rules how they split the meat and the oh. the one who shot the moose uh, takes organs uh, like a liver and so on, and then the rest. Uh, you know, they cutting it, they putting it in the mm-hmm. piles, and you know. So they have a rules mm-hmm. how they split mm-hmm. the meat. But you're is it is it similar in your case? Or are you just you know getting your uh, your rifle or your bow and your uh, you know snowboard and you're going into the mountains <laughs> to harvest the moose? Um,
1: I have dreamt of hunting caribou from my skis, but I haven't done that yet. Um, <laughs> wow. So for for moose. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to hunting moose. I think I've, I've been, I'd say I've hunted, hunted pretty hard two seasons and then a little bit in a couple other seasons. So I'm really still learning it and it's a really interesting hunt. Uh, and I'm learning so much about moose and their habitat and how they Mm. work. Cause to be a successful hunter, that's what it takes you. You know, you don't just walk out in the woods. I mean, people think, oh, you're in Alaska. There's probably like giant herds of caribou everywhere. And the salmon are just like always there. And no, like there's a little time when salmon are around. There's, there's sometimes when you might find a, a herd of caribou way up north, you got to go for that. But there's also most of the year, there's n- nothing Um, you know, the moose, they're very hard, they, they're, they're hard to find during hunting season often. Anyway, I'm learning a lot about them and for a moose, just to, just to cut straight to your question, um, I've been on one successful moose hunt. So one year me and a friend, um, got a, a bull moose and splitting that half and half so his family had half my family had half and then I gave a bunch away to another family that came to help us process it um, that has fed our my family of three of us for a year and a half I'm just about oh it. man I'm I'm almost down to I, I actually have like probably five pieces of five, maybe five pounds of moose left from
0: not wow. this. And that tall, was, and that was like one third of it.
1: Uh, it was probably, it's closer to ha- pretty close to half,
0: pretty close to half.
1: So th- Year and this, and a half. this wow. animal, this animal was, I mean, it was, a. it wasn't the biggest moose I've ever seen, but it was a big mature bull moose. Um, I don't, I don't know if it weighed eleven hundred pounds or maybe a thousand. So it's like it's a, it's almost it's as big as a horse, you know. Like you go up next to a moose and at the shoulder, like that's probably this high on me. Yeah. Um, and it's it's incredible and it takes an incredible amount of work. Um. But yeah we had as we had a so a, a friend of mine, you know we were looking at hunting. I'd gone out a little earlier in the season and didn't have any any luck. and then we got together and went out and we take uh, we go out in canoes and put in the river and float down. and you know we stop and
0: do did you go and, and, did you go on, the, on on your own for the first time?
1: Uh, I've hunted I've hunted my my on my own just for some short day hunts. And then I also, uh, typically I try to go with a partner this last year. I hunted for almost a week or more on my own. Um, and that's the kind of situation where if I were to get one, if by myself, it would have to be very ideal circumstances for me to do all the work myself. Like it would have to be like, oh yeah, I shot it real close to the river and I can quarter it up into pieces and get it to my boat probably what i would be doing is trying to get in touch with uh a friend who would come in and help me
0: at that point right right that was that was that was that was where i was getting with with that because like man deal with that big animal all on your own and then extract it from where you shot it that would be chore I'd like to recommend the Hunter Conservationist podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It took, uh, with two of us on that moose, it took us a couple days. Um, Whoa. you know, we had, yeah, we, sh- and where, yeah. what were the
0: temperatures? Were there not, not, uh, uh, where you're not risking the meat spoiling? If it was, like- uh,
1: no, it was. So the, the hunt here, it's an interesting hunt here. It's very highly controlled, and it's, uh, called a level two subsistence tier two subsistence hunt, which means you have to live in Hanes or one of the very nearby communities to be able to get a tag for it. Um, they give out 25 permits and no, sorry. They give out about, uh, two, I think it's two to 250 permits and It's a three-week-long season. When the season opens, you have to check your moose in when you get one with the Department of Fish and Game, and they count those, and it's allowed to go to 25 moose. So once 25 moose have been shot, they close the season. Either that or three weeks. If it goes to three weeks and there's only 20, that's it. It's closed. Um, there's also a lot of antler restriction, so which is I think one of the most challenging parts about this hunt. You'll talk to hunters, and they'll go out and they'll see, you know, sometimes you'll see five to ten bull moose in a day, and none of them are illegal moose.
0: Because- there's some some regulations on the brotine on the on mm-hmm. the antlers, right?
1: Yeah, it has to it has to either be a spike or fork. On one side or it has to have three brow tines on at least one side or it has to be over 50 inches wide from tip to tip so you're out in the field even if you get close to a moose you have to spend a lot of time looking at this thing with your binoculars or your scope your spotting scope or whatever trying to figure out if it's a legal moose because if it's not a legal moose and you shoot it you bring it in you're required by law to harvest the entire moose bring it in and then it gets donated to uh, charity and you and um to and there will also be charges filed against you for illegal take of a moose um if you report it um they they tend to you know go easier on you Um, yeah
0: that's what I heard that that usually when you're when you're kind of report self-report and say like yep I screwed up I you know make it because I guess it can be just an honest mistake
1: yeah it's it's a it's can be a really hard judgment call but um but it's 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 really exciting It's, I mean, it's incredibly exciting to be out in the, out in the woods and hear these animals. I'm just starting to learn to call them, um, on my, my, one of my first hunts, I was able to, I actually found a shed antler. I didn't have a good system yet for raking trees to, to call them in. And I found a piece of a shed antler. And so me and my buddy, we were walking around, and we found, like, some fresh sign, and I was like, this is it. Like, there's – I know it just feels moosey. There's got to be a moose around here. <laughs> and so we took that shed antler, and I said, yeah, rake that tree. Just – I mean, just hammer that thing. And so he's back there just raking this tree, and sure enough, within about five seconds from when he quit doing that, I heard – this moose stand up maybe a hundred yards away and it walked straight through the brush. I mean, it was like a jungle, like the brush was eight feet high and you could hear this thing just, and then I could see it's antlers above the brush. And I, I mean, we about, we didn't know what to do. We're like, Oh God, what do we do? Here it comes. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, I'm sitting there, I had my rifle and he didn't have a, you know, he wasn't hunting. He didn't have a permit. So he was out just helping me. And, uh, he's like, what am I going to get behind the tree? Hide behind that tree. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so he, so this moose comes in and I called it right in to within, it was 18 yards. And I mean, just incredible. Like, as big, like I said, it's as big as a horse and it has a rack, you know, as big as my arm span on it and just a magnificent. And it came in and kind of, it went right behind this bush perfectly. And the whole time I'm trying to look at it to see if it has the right brow times. And and I'm looking. And I can't quite tell. I can see one side pretty good. And your heart
0: and, is pumping, oh. and you need to figure out your freaking brow tine on the moose.
1: Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's just like adrenaline out the window. You know, trying to breathe. It's do do yoga, breathe. Pr- pr- <laughs> front of now, you've got to calm down. You know, and uh, oh. comes in and 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 went right behind this tree, and we just sat there and watched it for a while, and. Eventually, it walked away, and I i didn't think it was a legal moose, but I also hadn't gotten a really good look at the other side. So, we were able actually to come back around to it and, and ended up, it, it left, and then we went and I was able to find it. And I thought it'd gone down towards this river, and so I snuck through and I was in this grass about three feet high, and it came back up the hill and ended up about, I don't know, eight, 10 feet away from me. And I just kind of sat down a little bit in the grass and didn't move. And I was, I was up, uh, downwind. And so I got to sit there with this, this giant, this big old bull moose, you know, 10 feet away. And he never spooked. He never realized that I was there. Finally, he turned his head the other way and I could see that he wasn't legal So then after a little bit of just being really still, he just laid down right there. He bedded down and took a nap. And I just, I snuck out backwards really quietly and slowly. And, you know, for me, that, that kind of a hunt like that, even though, you know, I didn't, I didn't shoot an animal. I didn't, I didn't, that part of it didn't happen, but it was a complete, that's a complete hunt for me. Like the excitement and the connection to bring bring this animal in to get to see it, and then later to get to spend time next to it, and also to be able to leave and leave this animal totally—it was undisturbed, you know. And for me, that feels really good. Like for me, that was a successful hunt.
0: Absolutely, and 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 listen. Uh, so, well, a couple of questions. First <laughs> of all, so is is the whether it's legal or not legal, is it not depending on the on the size, on the a on uh, or age? Because I would imagine that this big of a moose, this has to be legal. So is it not re- so, so? Is the legal requirement only loosely related to how old or how big is the animal? The so it, it,
1: it, you're exactly right. It, it it is related to the age of the animal, and it's related to uh, fishing game monitoring those moose populations. And what you're doing is if you take out the, the young, the spike fork, those little guys, they're not breeders, they're not breeding yet. And then you're leaving the bulls that are essentially in the prime of their life.
0: Okay, so you're taking the ones that not breeding yet and those who are already past their prime, who are already not breeding
1: and and well those those big those big guys either the 50 inch or the three brow tine they're probably still breeding but they have probably most likely they have already bred and their genetics are already in the gene pool and they've been doing that for a while and then like you said some of it is once they start getting real old um those are your big big huge moose and so the idea is that those moose have already bred and their genetics have gone on and passed on, and so they've produced a lot of, a lot of moose. And sort of take them out of the pool is gonna, um, to take the, them out, but keep those bulls that are in more of the prime of their life in the herd is gonna maintain the health of that of that population. So
0: that so that big giant moose it it still could get bigger. So it was just yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah, the wow. the,
1: the wow. moose the moose that I saw. So the moose that I was just telling that story, that hunt about, mm-hmm. um, was not a legal moose to shoot. In the so in in his prime, probably breeding lots of cows or here and there for however many years. The one that we that we did harvest the next season, um, it was a legal bull, and it was, it, I'm sure it was breeding. When we found him, he had uh, a herd of probably, or a harem of, I think, I can't remember, I think he might have had six or, six or so cows with him. So he was, he was, you know, of breeding capability for sure.
0: But you're just taking fewer of those out. Yeah. And, and this is so another, because I heard this, uh, how this saying that people have funny stories about, Bears, but no one has a funny story about moose or something like that. <laughs> so, what w- was it? Was it dangerous? Was it? Was it when it, when it was coming towards you, towards you? Was it? Was it? Is was he just curious, or was it like a pissed off and was trying to like sort out the problem?
1: Oh yeah, pissed off because I went right into his zone where he was trying to attract cows, and I said, I made the sound that said, "I'm a big bull and I'm here to take your cows. <laughs> That's what it sounded like to him. And he came over and said, Oh, I don't think so. I'll come up <laughs> with your butt. Um, so that's essentially what was going on. So, oh, man. yeah. It, and I've, I ha I haven't had any bad experiences yet. Um, with, with a moose, but I've definitely talked to a lot of hunt a handful of hunters here who have told me stories about being chased around the tree, um, being chased by a moose and having moose either almost stomp on them because i think in alaska moose injure and kill almost as many people as bears do so they're definitely they're a formidable creature
0: (laughs) not the ones to mess around Mm. yeah oh man so so you're and and so you you finally the following season you got you got your moose. Yeah,
1: I got I got I was able to. Yeah, me and a buddy were able to harvest a moose together. And wow,
0: that's a story. That's yeah, awesome, it man. so yeah, so so just to go to the li- to the list, so you you have a moose available mm-hmm. for harvest. Yeah, what else? Caribou. Uh, caribou,
1: and for caribou, you have to go quite a ways north from here. It can go up to the, probably the closest to us would be near, uh, Delta Junction, um, up in back into the main part of Alaska. And that would be about a, I can't remember if it's an eight or 10 hour drive
0: or farther. So is there. it, is it, does it qualifies as not really viable option for, you know, um, food source? I, I
1: have, I have hunted and harvested a caribou that was, might have been my first, second animal that I harvested in Alaska was uh, a caribou with my bow, and that was up on the North Slope. So up, uh, up off the—they call it the Hall Road, but it's the the road that goes along the Alaska Pipeline all the way up to to the ocean, and then goes all the way to Valdez. But so up on the North Slope. I I was able to successfully harvest a caribou with my bow there so and people do it from here you know people will go up north and and hunt caribou um for sure so that's within reason
0: uh, a lot we of people- go we, we get back to the caribou and we get yeah. back to bow hunting for sure yeah. but uh but the, uh, so 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 what are so what other you you also have a uh, like uh, goats mountain goats yeah and Bear, that we know that you haven't hunted, but this is option to hunt bear, yep. goats, what sheep? But probably sheep is, a, is a, the, the tag situation and permits is very difficult.
1: Um, for an Alaska resident, sheep's not that hard. Um, a, you'd have to go a little okay. ways north again. The sheep live farther interior and a little ways north. But the um, hunt
0: is super hard for sheep.
1: Uh, yeah, it can be. Yeah, it's challenging. Um, in Alaska, you can get an over-the-counter tag, so it doesn't cost me anything to get that tag. And there's an open season that I can go hunt. If you use a guide service, okay. they are often very expensive, um, and out of state would be expensive.
0: Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So this is for residents. So again, yeah. like uh, if you're a resident, that then it's oh, all okay, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So here
1: I can hunt. I can hunt moose, um, mountain goat. There are deer, Sitka black deer, uh, the nearest huntable population is about fifteen miles south of here, and um, black bear and brown bear. Um, yeah, that's about it for the big game. And then there's small game.
0: Wow, man, that's uh... <laughs> and grouse. One of my favorite is hunt what... grouse. <laughs> Oh, and grouse. Yeah. Yeah. Birds as well. Yeah. Huh. So my, I, and, I, and which one, which one, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think I really
1: enjoy hunting all of them. I think mountain goat hunting is my favorite. Um, Oh really? Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's, the mountains here are rugged. They are steep and rugged and it's a lot of work. It's, it's hard to get up to treeline. It's not that far up, but it's a lot of work to get up there. Um, once you get up there, it's, it's like, it's my favorite place to be. Uh, I love being in the mountains. I love being up high. The goats, they go to the hardest places you can go. Um, go to the steepest cliffs and the hardest places and, it's really neat to hunt them. It's a, for me, it's a spot and stock hunt. And I think for most people, so, you know, they're, they're not super hard to see. It's hard to find a a mature Billy for sure. But
0: yeah, that's what I heard that there's some, some, some limits that when you, if you harvest a nanny, then for like two years or something, you, you cannot go for a hunt and yeah. It's it's very difficult to spot you you're looking at the base of a uh, horns or something. Is yeah. It- there are
1: some it depends on the area and the population. Um, here they, they monitor them really closely and um so you can hunt a billy or a nanny, fishing and game, and it's kind of becoming the culture that folks are really pushing towards just hunting billies. Um And that's what I think a lot of people try to do that. But then it makes it so that if you make the mistake and you harvest a nanny, you know, you're not going to lose your license or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And some people do still hunt the nannies. um, And that's, you know, that's their choice. But, yeah, it's really hard to tell the difference on the horns between a billion and nanny. I've spent hours, like hours very close to goats hidden watching them with binoculars and you'll look at them in one angle and you're like, Oh, that's definitely a Billy. And then it turns the other way and you're like, no, no, that, that antler, it's kind of, there, that horn. It's skinny. No, that's a nanny. No, it's a big. <laughs> you know? And sometimes you get, you can see one and you're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's obvious. You know, if you, if you're lucky enough, my first goat, I was able to watch it urinate and, that's a very obvious difference between the ways the way that the, the Billy and the nanny urinate. So I was able to go, Oh, okay. There, I just watched that happen. That's a Billy. Great. Let's go.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how many, how many, uh, how often they urinate? I don't know, I don't know because, because it's the question is like, is it like, it's a matter of like, you're just going to, uh, stick around for long enough to to be sure to be sure or that they can go like 3 days without I, urinating I, so you know not I'm it.
1: not sure I I think yeah I think I I don't know I've some goats I've seen and you know, I'm like walked up oh that I watched that one urinate oh okay let's go and other goats, I've sat there and watched them for eight hours and haven't seen them urinate. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, you know okay. you can But that's a good that. tip. I never heard about that. I never heard about that. That like, you'll see them urinate, then you can tell easily. Of course. Well, that's you don't.
1: You can't see their genitals, but the billy will stand up with his. He'll put his chest up and his legs forward and his legs straight back, and he urinates like that. And the the nanny will squat. She'll squat her, her back end down and urinate. So, and I watched, I watched a goat urinate one time and I was like, oh, that's a, that's a Billy then. And it was a nanny, but because of the slope of the hill behind her, it looked like she was standing. So you can't, that's the thing with goats. You can't bank on one thing. You have to figure out like horns. If you can watch them urinate, some of their body shapes are different, but then sometimes you'll be like, that's a Billy. And you're like, no, it's a big nanny. So, Hmm. but definitely my favorite, my favorite, I think my favorite hunt is for goats. I really enjoy that. Um, I've wanted to do it with a bow, but I've lately I've been limited on, on time. So I take my rifle and, uh, kind of funny because the last two two that i've taken i've i've been i've i could have taken them with the bow i was close enough i was like oh yeah this is definitely bow range yep we got it but so i think this year i'm gonna really set my goal and i'm gonna i'm gonna really get my bow tuned well and practice up and uh i'm gonna do what i can i'm gonna do try and do more scouting this this season for goats and Try and set myself up t- to see if I can get one with a bow.
0: Okay, so listen. So let's talk about bow hunting because this is really how we, how we get to how we get to talk. And obviously, right. there is uh, you know like you, you, as usual in the, in the, in those cases we could sit here and talk for three hours straight. Um, but so so let's let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about uh, bow hunting mm-hmm. and what I am. Particularly interested in is your views on, um, you know how how that compares to hunting with a rifle, mm-hmm. and especially you know in a in a welfare aspect of the of the harvest of the of the kill, um, let's say. And obviously, I'm coming from the perspective of European hunter, um, yeah. where only in a very few not only very few countries, but few even regions in, within those countries, uh, bow hunting is is legal. Where I live and where most of our uh, listeners live, Ireland, uh, UK, uh, it's straight up illegal mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. on the animal welfare based basis. Um, mm. So I'm since you are obviously living close to nature. And um, you're clearly a person who is very much connected with the animals and understand and and uh, value them um, as a, as a living creatures and and yeah. and, and yeah. have that connection. And you hunted with you know both with with a bow and with a rifle. Yeah. Um, just just to kick, kick us off, you know, how would you compare uh, the hunt and, and then the kill itself? Mm-hmm. Uh, with a rifle and with a bow. The bow takes
1: more time and more effort ty- typically, because you do have to get so much closer. And so I think one of the things that, as a bow hunter, I I would say that this is a biggest big folk This is a huge focus for any bow hunter is shot placement. Because you have to focus on that so much because that, that's what depends on, A, your kill, but also your ethical kill or not. Um, you're using a projectile that's going to cut. And so that is what you need. And you need to put that in the right place to cause that animal to die. Um, so shot placement for a bow hunter is more important even than for a rifle hunter a rifle kills by concussion right it's so much force so much so much force impacting that animal it's breaking bones it's shattering things it sends a huge shock wave through the entire animal um it does a lot of damage in that regard and so that that impact that shock is huge if i if i put My, if I put, if I'm trying to shoot a deer and my arrow is off by this much, I might not hit vitals. And now I've wounded a deer instead of killing it. If I put my rifle this far off, chances are I'm still going to have a kill shot or at least a fatal, uh, a shot that I can follow up um, just because there's so much impact force. Um, so how would I compare those, those two kills is I feel for me. So we're talking. we've been talking about being close to animals in the natural world. For me, when I go out and hunt with my bow, I feel closer. I am closer and I have to be closer. Um, for me, that's on an energetic level, a connection level and the physical level. Literally, I got to get closer. I have to be quieter, um, because I'm closer And I'm, I'm, you often hear of hunters talk about the red zone. When you get in within the red zone for an animal, that's where it's going to start picking you up for a boat. You have to be in that deer, that animal's red zone. You're close. And so they're really good at surviving. If they hear you, they smell you, whatever, it can give it away. So it's a, it's a higher level. Also, it's a, to me, it's a more natural, almost more gentle way of hunting because when i let my arrow go it makes a little bit of noise it's not even as loud as a stick breaking in the woods and if i hit that animal and i hit it cleanly where i'm trying to hit um sometimes it'll go right through that animal and it will jump and it won't maybe it won't even feel that it's been hit because uh because my broadhead is so sharp I had one deer where that happened. It was a, it was a shot that went right where I wanted to. It ended up passing between ribs and through part of the heart and the lungs. Uh, that deer jumped once, about five yards, and stood there for five seconds, and expired. Like I don't know that that deer ever knew what happened to it. Um, that being said, I've also had. This episodes.
0: is this is interesting. I I heard that many times. So so from your experience, um, because you know I I always thought that this is like once once every now and then the an an oddball situation where you you know bow hunter shoots the animal and the animal doesn't know what hit him and you know stands there and looks or just goes back to grazing and then expires. Right. I thought, Mm -hmm. but then when I talk with bow hunters, it it almost happened to every single one of those. So is, Mm -hmm. is that like an oddball situation or is it, it seems to me like it's maybe not very common, but at least it's not nothing unusual to have that sort of reaction or lack of. I think that that,
1: while it's not the rule with, hunting it doesn't happen all the time um that's what you're striving for and when you when when you get a shot that's really well placed and works out i think that that can be a a, an outcome that happens you know regularly regularly yeah um Hmm. i think the 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 more common is that you're gonna shoot that animal and it's gonna it's gonna take off running Um, it takes a little while for an animal to, who's been hit and had its lungs or its heart or whatever part of it cut for that to die. And they'll go anywhere from typically 50, um, yards and up to a hundred yards. But they say that typically if you've hit an animal and hit it fairly well, you will find that animal within a hundred yards.
0: So overall, you would you would it would it be fair to say I don't wanna put the word in your mouth, but would it be fair to say that you 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 feel like uh kill with a with a bow is more humane, more well I don't want to so, say pleasant because it's unpleasant, but
1: yeah, I I think it's interesting because it doesn't always happen that way. It happens where you shoot you shoot an animal and it takes a while for it to die. Um I also don't think that that's probably a terrible way to go. I think that with a rifle, it's it's often, but not always, very quick. It's a lot of shock. And when we think about, if you want to think about, like, what is humane? So humane, I looked up the definition of humane the other day, and part of it was compassion for uh x so for another person for an animal and animals was one of the description so if we're talking about compassion which is a is a theme for me for sure um i think of that animal and and my goal is to have the quickest cleanest easiest kill i can it doesn't always work out that way for sure however that's always my goal i think with a bow when that happens to me, it seems more humane. I've also had quick, clean kills with a rifle. And that feels I will, that feels more, it seems it's more violent because of the significant shock. However, I also believe that those kills are quick and therefore humane.
0: As a as a hunter who hunts with both, right, and with, mm-hmm. like both are for you legitimate and, and uh, way of hunting, yeah. do you do you understand where people are coming from saying that bow hunting is inhumane or or n- you know not humane enough compared to a rifle, or does that or does that strikes you as a you know Hard argument to make that is that that you would.
1: That's a hard argument to make. I would I would disagree with that statement.
0: Um, I think
1: that bow hunting. I I I think of first of all rifle or bow hunting in the wild versus an animal that's living in in, in a in a farm and being processed that way. And when I think of that kill, I think of my this animal that i hunted has lived a free life it has eaten you know all this good food all this natural food that it's eating it drank clean water it lived here it died quickly whether that was by my bow or my rifle and to me that is a that is a a humane life um if I were to live a life, I would hope to live wild and die quickly at the hands of a pred- at, a, at the hands of a skilled predator. I hope that if you know if I went out that way, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and I, I, I don't find that hunting with a bow is definitely not less humane than with a rifle. A rifle is a violent, hard-hitting, huge impact way to die. It is quick or it has the potential to be quick. And again, it's not always just because you hunt with a rifle doesn't mean it's a quicker death. If your shot placement is off that animal, you shoot it, you, you shoot its leg off. This is not, that's not a humane way to die. That's not a quick way to die. Another thing that I was thinking about, Tommy, that might help shed a little light into this is we're talking about living and being part of nature that we are human animals when i when i pick up my bow or my rifle and i walk out with the intention to go go hunt and harvest an animal i'm stepping into a an ancient still going relationship with the natural world quote unquote with the animals and these are animals that deal with being hunted every day by other animals. I'm taking my place in that cycle, in that, in that cycle as a predator. As a human, I'm a predator. My eyes are positioned in the front of my head so that I can focus on one animal that is my prey. Eons of evolution have designed me to be a predator. When I pick up my bow or my rifle and walk into the woods to hunt, I'm now a predator in this situation. I happen to at times be a very effective predator. I'm able to, I also have the technology that allows me to kill things relatively quickly and relatively cleanly. If you think about a caribou or a moose out in the wild, it's number one predator is a wolf Hmm. to take down an animal of that size a wolf doesn't go in there and kill that animal by itself in 30 seconds. It goes in there with a pack of other animals and once they are able to bite it on its butt long enough to start dragging it down as it runs through the creek and it tries to get away and enough animals are able to drag it down, the, the wolves start tearing that animal apart and eating it while it's still alive, they're not—they're not going for a quick, clean kill and waiting for it to die. They are eating it. They're ripping it apart. That's how they kill it. So, if you want to talk about a humane kill, the way I do it is probably much more humane than any other predator is going to do it. So that puts no it in doubt perspective. About it. If we want to eat meat, that's the role that we have to accept. And I feel like we have to accept that responsibility and the weight that that carries, because it is significant to take another life. And just because I go buy something from the grocery store, I almost wish there was a way for it to have some of that gravity. The feeling that I have when when I take the life of an animal, and it has come from my hand, and passed into, I feel that it passes to me, the responsibility passes to me then to do as much as I can to honor and respect that animal. When I go to the supermarket, I'm more removed from that situation
0: because I don't have to kill it. Someone already d- d- done that work for you. Uh, listen, Zephyr, so so w- what would you say to the argument that um, because... Bow hunting is so much more difficult than the you know potential for hunter to being either not skilled enough to make the quick humane kill or potential to you know take a shot that you know the a hunter has no business taking uh-huh. Uh-huh. and probability of wounding animal uh-huh. is higher and therefore um, y- you know, like I'm I'm playing devil's advocate yeah. a little bit here, but obviously this is part of the this is part of the conversation, and and even you said earlier that, um, even if you miss, your your shot is not perfectly placed with a rifle, because of that concussive force, you probably you know uh, get the at least animal mortally wounded, which poses this, it questions in itself. Like, is this mm-hmm. humane, right? right. Right. Versus an, an, an animal. So I, 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 I'm, I'm curious, you know, how would you weigh on the, if you take into it, e- if you take into the equation the fact that the bow hunting is so much more difficult and therefore the probability of, you know, screwing up shot, wounding animal, you know, taking bad shot, taking, you know, not. Composing yourself and keeping your, you know, restrained, um, place in place into the fact that okay, your wounding rate will be higher. You're more likely to wound the animal. You're more likely to not have a clean, humane kill uh, versus versus rifle, right? Because this is another part of an argument. Like okay, in the perfect world, yes, but then, then we're not living in the perfect world. How would you weigh on that?
1: I mean, uh what strikes me initially there is whether it's with a rifle or a bow, I think, uh, it comes down to the hunter and, it and, and it's the difference between, it's the difference of a shot that a hunter will take, um, their skill level with either piece of equipment. Um, and, what shot they are a either comfortable with or how ethical is that shot with either one. Um, so I think a lot of it comes to that. And it's, I don't, I don't think that it's so much of a difference between the equipment that's being used. It's how it's being used. Cause I can have, I can take a shot with my bow. That is a very, very, ethical within my, well, within my range, good shot, wait for the right angle. And it it all lines up. I can do that with my bow at say 40 yards. And that's great, easy. And with my rifle, I can do the same thing. And maybe that's at 200 yards and it's still a very clean, you know, it's the same setup. I can also do the same thing where then I can take my bow and I can be like, I'm going to try and hit that deer at 70 yards. That, prob- that for me would not be an ethical shot because that's outside of my shoot range. Same thing. I can take my rifle and I can go, I'm going to go shoot that deer at 500 yards. My bow will shoot 70 and put that arrow exactly where I want it if I can hold it my rifle will shoot 500 yards and do the exact same thing at that range for for me those second two shots are not ethical shots so i think it, i think it actually might come down more to the ethics and the shot you know the shot that is being taken as to as to to that situation
0: I also I also say that one of the arguments that I often bring in this conversation is that because as a hunter, you or whoever the hunter is, knows that it's so much more difficult to hunt with a bow, they usually will put more effort and more hours into training and preparation. While I feel like with a rifle, quite often, you know, they, the, the, they, unless they're in a the gun club and 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 you know making, uh, you know shooting competition or, or, th- or something like that, then, you know, I know for a fact about hunters who just taking you know like a five shots in a season and these are five shots on the animal. Yeah. That's it because yeah. it it has this perception that it's easier. It's like all right, I just need to align my scope and so on. Well, bow hunter. They will get the reps in, um, so th- that's that's also my argument. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I I, I feel like if bow hunters by the sheer fact that this is so much more difficult, they tend to train more and be b- better trained at the craft.
1: Yeah, I, I I think that that comes down to an inherent um, difference in the equipment. The a rifle is something that. It's actually, interestingly, in this day and age, it's a simpler tool. Um, (laughs) it's It's a simpler tool. It's something that can be set up, right? You can get your rifle set. You can get your scope set. You can dial it all in. It's easier to isolate the variables. You know, you can put it on a sled and set it, and Make sure that your zero is on with your scope at this yardage or your sights are in and your bullet matches this. Um, And you can do that. With a bow, it is tuned to that person and is set to that person. And much more of the, the energy that you put into that is from drawing the bow and the person and holding and all this. That's where the energy for that arrow comes from. In a bullet it comes from a from a, a cartridge with powder in it that's much easier uh, that, that's uh, less that's less variable hmm. so I can I can go out I can get a rifle sighted in and I can hand it to you and you can go out and use it and it will perform exactly how it did when I had it yeah with a bow, I can't get my bow tuned to me where it's functioning perfectly and hand it to you because it's not going to fit because you're, you know, you're a different size. Your draw is different. The energy that you're putting into it is slightly different. There's, you know, there's variables. So it, it's more complex with a bow. It does take more tuning. Um, so therefore I would say, yeah, it's easier to pick up a rifle and get it tuned and, go shoot. So yeah, you can do that. I spend less effort on my rifle than I do on my bow to get the same. I
0: think this is, this is the, this is the, 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 the the basis of a discussion, right? That being it easier doesn't necessarily make it more humane at the, at the outcome. I I, I think, I think this is, this is the line where, the opponents of bow hunting would disagree with you and me uh and 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 try to kind of take that part into like okay, what is the probability um you know that someone will um wound the animal because I guess the the whole argument hinges on the wounding rates which which arguably are higher for for bow um but I think then again where I agree with you it's like it's down to a hunter mm-hmm. and, and that's uh, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, uh, one of the, one of the, just to wrap this up, I think that one of the unfortunate things is like the official European uh, hunting organization. They said something like they support bow hunting as long as local, you know, organizations within each country are, you know, fine with that and, and build like, up and, from what i can see like no one wants to touch it even <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's 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 un, it's unfortunate and you know it's even unfortunate because there are bow bow, bow shooting clubs mm-hmm. there is like a spot bow shooting people have a compound bow and mm-hmm. then, you know target shooting
1: targets yeah but,
0: but just somehow that thing is is not making uh not making way so <laughs> hopefully you know discussions like this will will um you know uh, maybe yeah. start at least start the conversation
1: yeah i i i feel for you <laughs> that sounds really hard like it would be really challenging to to be told like oh here's here's a weapon that has been used for eons of of time to to get food and you can't use that because Somebody else doesn't think that somebody else's perception is that it, it doesn't kill quickly enough or effectively enough.
0: Yeah, and and you made you 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 made excellent point, Zephyr, as well that the humane kill is not necessarily the quickest. Right, it's it's. Uh, I think this is this is quite often where the argument is like, oh, because a concussive force and so on and so on. like like that not necessarily means quick, quicker doesn't necessarily means more humane, right? Right. Let's lob the grenades at the animal. Right? That <laughs> will kill them quickly. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky one. And if you know, maybe is is it less humane if I shoot a caribou and it it goes and it walks off a little ways and it lays down and it takes a couple hours to die as it lays in its home environment um and dies peacefully lying down and expires that way is that not a good way to go is that not humane Um, Or is it actually humane to be killed quickly with such massive shock that it ripples through the entire animal's body, crushing bones and other things?
0: Yeah. Zephyr, listen, um, just to finish on a slightly lighter note, uh, because we we went out deep and kind of (laughs) dark a little bit. Um, (laughs) Listen... uh, are there any words of wisdom anything you would like to leave our listeners and viewers with um as a one who is a uh, you know living such a f- fortunate life of connection with nature and and uh you know subsistence living as much as possible what what wisdom or what advice would you give to all the listeners and viewers of Tommy's Outdoors
1: be thankful for the things that are good in your life take take the moments to feel how how blessed and how fortunate we are with whatever food and whatever water we have and to be thankful for what we do have and and remember that as as much as we can make it in any little way that we are human animals that we are part of This natural world, we're all part of this same, same world that we're not actually separate from the outside or the animals that we live on this planet with. And so, and I believe it is our, I believe it is our, I believe it is my uh, charge, my duty to do what I can to respect them, to respect the natural world and to do what I can to um, take care of it and preserve it and protect it in whatever whatever the best way that I can.
0: Well said, well said. Zephyr, thank you very much. appreciate your time. It's been great conversation.
1: Thank you, Tommy. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy talking with you.